0: Hey everybody, welcome to Techno Social podcast. This is episode 1 with me, Owen and Dylan.
1: Yo, what's up? Um this is our first episode. It's just going to be us two. We're not interviewing anyone, although in most episodes going forward, I think we are going to have people in to talk to. Um certainly in the other 3 that we're uh, releasing alongside this one. And we just kind of it's kind of an introduction really not, not a comprehensive one, but a, a good place to start for our general thoughts about why we're starting a podcast, about the stuff we want to talk about, that's going on today in the world.
0: Crisis in knowledge production is a big topic. Mm. And we also get quite deep into the nitty gritty of if it's possible to know anything at all.
1: Indeed. Um, and hopefully it's going to be very interesting to all of you dear listeners.
0: I hope you enjoy the show, guys.
1: Socials. how you doing dylan i'm doing pretty good man i am pretty gassed i have to say yeah i'm pretty excited for having all the equipment ready it's been a long road getting here buying stuff from amazon and then sending back to amazon and then getting other stuff from amazon (laughs) and then eventually going to a much better music site that offers warranty and longer periods for sending the stuff back every bump along the way
0: giving us more energy it's like we're almost ready for liftoff. We've got the art sorted, mm-hmm. beautiful,
1: badass artwork. We have some paying artwork, man. We have some proper, like, actually cool-looking artwork, like...
0: Synthwave vibes.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, like, professional, original, kind of, like, you look at it and you think, like, these guys are actually making a big fucking effort to make this beat super fucking cool.
0: Yeah, man. Which
1: is definitely the vibe we want to go for.
0: And we've got a couple of guests lined up. We've got... Yeah representatives from think tanks we've got someone from autonomy a think tank researching the future of work mm. looking into how our lives are going to be affected by technology how the working life is going to be affected and campaigning and lobbying the government around that would be super interesting to find out what their thoughts are That's and also we've got cool. someone from demos think tank who a lot of research into disinformation campaigns. They, I think they've done a lot of research into what happened with the American elections in 2016 mm. and continuing to think about, I think, the future of the online world and information spread. So super excited to get those in the book and then uh, to see where it takes us, man. Indeed. We've got a couple of like cool conferences lined up. We've got the Rebel Wisdom Summit.
1: Rebel Wisdom Summit. That's going to be interesting. That's going to be very fun. Um, what else? Mm, I'm not too familiar with our schedule, to be honest.
0: There's also the Open Rights Group conference that I clocked on Oh, right, the yeah, that day. one you really think too. Like, yeah, I should get in on that. Yeah. yeah, so I booked my ticket today. So they're the UK's, I think, biggest, I think they're a charity or some kind of campaign group. Again, looking into um, surveillance culture, things like online privacy, uh, online rights, uh, free speech online, um, campaigning. Searching, uh, bringing people together to talk about, think about these things. I think they've got mm. Edward Snowden, the uh, famous whistleblower, speaking at the conference.
1: Oh wow, that's pretty. That's a big name. That's pretty cool. Oh, so that's a piece of news as well. Julian Assange has been arrested, yeah, which is interesting. Um, but I guess it's all links back to the new technological society that we live in. That it's no longer, you know, it's it's no longer enough for. You know that it just be headlines on a day, and everyone just like reads the paper and heads off to work. Now, information travels travels freely across a vast interconnected network, and in a way, it is overregulated, and in a way, it's completely unregulated. So, yeah, certainly interesting times, and cool mm-hmm. people that we have to to get on to talk about these interesting times in which we live. As you are, the times are techno-social. Yes, indeed. And that's time. why we're doing what we're doing. We're doing the techno-social podcast, so our information can go out onto the web and also be potentially used by governments to manipulate elections. Mm-hmm. In a way, it would be cool if our podcast was so big that people really did think that we were manipulating elections.
0: <laughs> I don't want to be manipulating, election, m- elections, manipulating <laughs> elections, other than, but well, I suppose... Every conversation about a political matter is to some degree a manipulation because you're, you're affecting the information current. You're affecting what someone else thinks and what you, you yourself think.
1: Mm. The mm. question
0: is not whether or not we manipulate because in like some sense, attempting to change each other's minds is all manipulation. But it's mm. where is the line between fair manipulation and unfair manipulation? That's the big question of these elections, right?
1: Well, I guess I guess in the past it was like if you told the truth, and if you argued in a civil way, then that was fine. Now nobody's really quite true, what quite sure what's true and what isn't anymore. Or at least the boundaries have become swayed by the fact that information can propagate so quickly online that no one gets a chance to point out that it's inaccurate. And on top of that, sort of. It seems like civil political debate has, I think more so in the USA than in Europe, but still in Europe, like, been been, um, sort of degrading as of yet. That, that we've seen politics become a lot more bitter and factional and messy, mm. um, which is all interesting, and in a way... I feel is very tied to the rise of the digital age, that and so this gets me onto what, what I was about to tell you about this book I've been reading, um, mm-hmm. Nervous States. He makes a point that sort of this is a point that Thomas Hobbes, who is like one of the biggest names in political thought ever, mm-hmm. kind of makes that basically we, in order for a society to be peaceful, there has to be some way of knowing that people are gonna keep their promises Mm. and in order to know that people are going to keep their promises there kind of has to be like a central truth Mm. and usually that truth is the state in a way that the state is is going to enforce all of these laws and contracts using its power but there's also sort of science and rationality which is also meant to kind of provide a truth around which everyone can unite so we can all feel that we all live in the same world as everyone else. Mm. And, you know, the rise of, you know, digital communication and, you know, the rise of information that can propagate so quickly and in such an unregulated fashion is in some ways calling into question our ability to be certain that I live in a world that's the same as the one you live in, that you are going to have the same fundamental truths or even just, like, factual events arranged in your brain in roughly the same way as me. And you could interpret that as sort of a threat to the fabric of society and to peace. Mm. Well, I
0: think there's this idea that... I've been listening to some of um, Jordan Peterson's early lectures this week. and Mm. In fact, in his first uh, lecture in his online Maps of Meaning series really good he's kind of talking about this idea that to some sense society can be conceived of as a game a very complex game but still a game that has rules that everybody kind of agrees on to a certain extent and the rules are what permit everybody to continue playing the game but also to live with some degree of harmony with each other Mm. so rules might be anything to do with like how you get a job, who can get a job, money, the idea that you have to play within this monetary system, mm-hmm. um, but also the way to, to interact socially. So an example, you go to a party and in theory, you could behave in any sort of way. You could strip your t-shirt off. You could knock all the food and drink on the floor. You should start, start fights with everybody. But you don't do that. You walk into the room. And you, you maybe introduce yourself to some people, you have conversations, mm. you do socialising, right? And you kind of assume that everybody else is also there to do socialising, which is playing the same game with roughly the same Yeah, rules. You're comfortable in that environment as long as everybody's socialising. But say all of a sudden you're in a party and someone punches someone else in the face then all of a sudden it's no longer a party it's something else you're going from what he says he kind of describes it as explored territory into unexplored territory Mm. and that well that has a number of effects it it really triggers a physiological response in your body you go into um into stress mode you're like wow i don't know what's going on anymore. so your heart rate might speed up Mm. You, uh, you might start breathing more heavily you might feel anxious or uncomfortable you might feel the desire to get involved in this situation oh, get out of this
1: situation. This is super interesting because that exactly describes what happens when I'm working in a bar and it's like, okay, right, this or that thing has happened. This person now needs to leave. And then the moment you become, you kind of like switch from like just bartender mode to kind of like, okay, we have to remove someone from the venue and we aren't necessarily sure of, say, how they're going to react or this or that. Like like literally you just feel it immediately, immediately like your heart rate, right? goes up and you feel the adrenaline you start getting a bit shaky Mm. you go into that kind of mode of like literally going from like comfort i know what i'm doing this is like my job i serve drinks make cocktails someone comes i'm nice to them blah 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 to like right now i am in the territory of like we have to make this thing happen but we're almost certainly going to run into like all kinds of obstacles and this person has more or less already made it clear to us that they have no intention of following the rules so we have to try and you know, do it our own way, which is, yeah, it it is exactly that. Your heart goes up, you become stressed. Exactly, right. And,
0: you can, you know, you can conceive of the bar environment. That's a game, too, within Mm. which we know our roles and we know what we're doing as long as you are serving customers and making drinks and customers are coming in and ordering drinks and paying for them. Mm. But if a customer comes in and has a drink and doesn't pay, then there's a problem, right? That's like the script's off. Now you've got to improvise, you've got to go into that state where you've got to go and say, oh, Are you gonna pay for that? Yeah. But similarly, if the customer <clears throat> comes up to you and orders a drink and pays for it and then you stand there and don't make the drink, Ooh. then also you're not playing the game.
1: Yeah, everyone has to play the game. And then I mean I think we've all
0: been in situations like when you're in a bar or in a restaurant where you've ordered and your thing hasn't come and you start you're a bit like, What's going on? Yeah, what's my thing? Then it's uncomfortable and maybe we'd well we have various ways of dealing with this. You might, like, kick off and shout at someone. Or you
1: might, a complaint politely. Or you might just go up and say, hey, where's my stuff? Mm. Or you could just shut up and wait for your drink. Because sometimes the bar's really busy. <laughs> sometimes we have a huge backlog of orders. And sometimes some dickhead just walked up and ordered, like, a margarita, a cosmopolitan, <laughs> um, like, a Long Island iced tea, a pint of beer, and, like you know, some liqueur that we've run out of specifically in that order and they want specifically okay, maybe they're not that pedantic, but it does happen, so okay, no, this is just me being
0: Yeah. <laughs> being I, I a
1: bartender, it. but yeah, like your drink is on its way. Like But here's the point, so society itself
0: is a game. A much more complex game, made of smaller games. Like there are however many bars within a society
1: mm. all running
0: on bar yeah. And then the society itself has a certain expectation that people have rules, you know, like teachers teach people and when you're a teacher you're you're adopting a certain stance towards your students. Yeah. You're there to communicate information and relate to them. You're not there to um, to be their parents, you know, you're there to discipline but there's a there's a line. You're not there to be sexual partners or to be flirty with the children, there's lines and when those things get crossed then there's issues for teachers, right? Mm. Similarly, you know, there's politicians and certain things are expected of politicians. A big issue with politics is corruption, right? Politicians taking money in ways that they shouldn't be taking money. And that is, that's bending the rules of the game. Mm. So That's kind of all, all corruption is to a certain extent not playing by the rules of the game that you're supposed to play to mm-hmm. it's acquiring money from sources that you shouldn't be getting money from or hiding
1: money yeah exactly but then you get the interesting sort of state of affairs that can arise where like you get this sort of dual like like existence of the official written game and then the real underlying game which is where corruption can become confusing because it's easy in, say, Britain or Sweden or Germany, where we have very big established rules of like, this is how this happens, to be like, ah, you took public money and you did this or that with it. But then you go to somewhere like Russia and like, you know, technically there are elections in Russia. There's a constitution, there's human rights written to the constitution and all this stuff. But that isn't really kind of like how it works, mm-hmm. you know? And so you, everyone is actually, like a lot of the politicians, on all levels, and a lot of the businessmen on all levels are playing actually a double game where, like, you have to, on the surface, appear to be playing the legal game, but under the surface and behind the scenes and under the table, you actually have to play the corrupt game. Yeah. And there's an interesting one, which is that apparently a lot of the time in Russian business, in order to do a business deal, in order to sort of sign a contract in a way, you and the person you're doing the contract with will, like, do something illegal together as in like jointly participate in money laundering or something like that or have something corrupt, corrupt thing that you both do and that way you're kind of like tied together mm. because now you can both fuck each other because you both participated in this illegal thing and you both yeah. know that the other person did it and that that's the only way that they can trust you right so so even though that's like not and i'm not 100 percent sure that that's actually the case in russia that's something that i've heard but um Uh, like that's kind of a good example of how you have the actual system, which is the written contract, but then you have the underlying system, which is how actually to seal the contract and to trust that you're going to keep the contract, you have to do something illegal with that person. Mm. But that's kind of a weird state of social affairs that in theory we want to avoid. Well, I think like what we
0: have, Certainly, countries that we understand to have a fairly low level of corruption—it's that like we kind of know it's there—but to some extent, we have faith that most of the participants are not engaging in the corrupt behaviour mm. most of the time, mm. or to a degree that is seriously inhibiting the ability of the uh, of the broader system in which they're contained to function. And mm-hmm. I mean, a, a good example of that is that. The systems that, like, like for example, the UK does function pretty well.
1: Yeah, we have, you know, uh, fairly... compared to say,
0: like, many states in Africa where corruption is a humongous problem, mm. and money comes in from I don't know if it's from like what various kind of like philanthropic organizations attempting to help these uh, countries mm. uh, build social programs, and it gets siphoned off into the pockets of rich politicians. Mm. And so things kind of stay, money goes in, but doesn't really seem to go anywhere. Mm. Whereas in the UK, we actually do have fairly strong, sturdy, reliable infrastructure most of the time, and a fairly open democratic political system. Mm. But I think we've gone a little bit off tangent slightly, I think, like, I kind of want to bring this back to the idea that you were talking about in the book about um, a society needs
1: a kind of unifying truth around, but yeah and like in a way if you think about say the contract like the idea in in i've been saying about in russia how you have to do a crime together that's because there is no truth because without that you can't actually believe they're going to keep the promise that they make in the contract Mm -hmm. whereas here in britain Everyone sufficiently believes that the state will prosecute you if you break the promise in the contract or will assist in that, enforce that prosecution, that we don't need any other sort of system of creating trust between people. We can just have this sort of Hobbesian sovereign, he calls it, Mm. that because everyone lives in the fear of the sovereign and everyone knows that everyone else lives in fear of the sovereign, then we can actually trust each other. Um... Which is, I think it's kind of a negative way of seeing people, that the only way that I can possibly trust you is by knowing that you and me both live in fear of this grander Mm. sort of thing. And in a way, you can see maybe sort of factuality and science and rationality and kind of um, peer review as a practice, both within scientific fields and also within the press as a sort of way of constructing a truth that it doesn't have to be enforced Mm. like we don't have to live in fear of peer review to be able to trust something that's peer reviewed, we we can just know because like, in a way because anyone who thinks that that is wrong is able to have a say Mm. and so we presume that there will have been process to take a piece of information and confirm it and make it true in a way that everyone can trust and that if we all trust in that process then in turn we can have this unifying truth that doesn't even need a a sovereign but that's kind of basically massively being questioned now because people feel Mm. like they can't trust the press anymore yeah so
0: there's one point I just wanted
1: to add on that which is Mm. like
0: Um, the thing is when you've got like a fairly reliable well working sort of fact checking uh, peer review system Mm -hmm. there are consequences to ignoring it but the consequences are not like you will will feel the full brunt of power, I can think of two probable consequences, one is just social derision, you come out and say something that's obviously wrong Mm -hmm. and everyone kind of goes like well that's wrong and that's bullshit, so you're an idiot. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, I mean, maybe this is like a not the best example to use, but like to come out and start talking about how the world is flat and then the scientific community will be like, well, no, you're just wrong. Yeah, I say it's a bad example because the flat earth movement is really kind of taking off. And maybe we can talk about that in a bit. But yeah. the point is that there's sort of like a scientific consensus and a mainstream opinion. And if you go outside of that, then the likelihood is that, you're wrong, and so people will laugh at you. The trouble is, sometimes you're right, and that yeah. is also part of the trouble. But the other, uh, the other thing you run into if you're going against what's kind of like mainstream wisdom, peer-reviewed um, knowledge, is that you might just be unable to act. It's like, yeah. I mean, to take a really stupid example, if you're like, you know what, like, I'm not constrained by gravity, I can fly if I jump <laughs> off a roof. Yeah, and everyone's like, Nah, man, like, literally. Millions of years of human experience, plus our understanding of the laws of gravity and science, tell us that if you jump off that roof, you're going to fall and hit the floor. And you're like, no, no <laughs> man, <laughs> I'm different.
1: Or yeah, we got it wrong. Like, I'm the exception. You've got it all wrong. And well, in a way, though, that's kind of an example of like the difference between experiential truth. Which is stuff that kind of everyone experiences and so like there's never gonna be anyone who denies gravity for the simple fact that it is an obvious and constant part of the life that everyone lives right Mm -hmm. so whereas like flat earth even though that's like you know it's not it's not that much more ridiculous than no gravity you know because the exact curvature of the earth it's not an immediately noticeable thing to the vast majority of the population a lot of the time that's a you know the earth being round is a truth that we have to have some trust in scientific institutions and scientific instruments in order to believe Mm. and well, that trust is basically seems to be less than it was.
0: Mm. Well, I think, you know, one of the issues is, as the, I kind of the one I flagged already, which is that the institutions and the, um, the ways of producing facts, knowledge checking are right most of the time, but not all of the time. Exactly. And so there's a lot of people who go against the consensus and are wrong. But everyone, in a while, there's someone who goes against the consensus and is right. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of an example. I think there's something like the guy who came up with the germ theory of disease. So the idea that disease was caused by some kind of microorganisms or particles. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. were yeah. Um, that were, I think, in the air or transferred on contact and thus could be eradicated if you washed your hands with sanitizer, was initially rejected by the scientific yeah, community yeah initially laughed at and it's like no you're wrong yeah that's just not how it works yeah that's just it, a crazy it theory you've come up seemed
1: with. ridiculous to them at the time that there's these tiny little living things floating around in the air and on your hands that you can't see like
0: can you remember what the theory was beforehand
1: it was miasma theory which long and short of it it was bad smells cause disease which is you know you can see the connection it's like a low resolution picture yeah it's a low resolution picture like if you live near toilets if you live near open air sewers if you live near rotting carcasses like you know there's going to be more disease and that makes sense it makes sense to sort of hook up those two things but it's correlation it's not causation and then also you kind of had the flip side which is that meant that they kind of viewed like stuff like scented candles as almost being like disease preventative which are not, they just cover up the smell that, you know. Mm. Um, and then another good example is um, evolution, actually. When they sort of first put together, so evolution became, you know, it never, wasn't 100% fully accepted, but it became the widely accepted theory of how life came to be on Earth during the latter half of the 19th century. But then when they sort of really codified the laws of thermodynamics, they realized using the laws of thermodynamics, they could calculate the age of the Earth. Mm. But at this point in time, they didn't know about radioactive elements. They didn't know that there are all these elements of Earth's crust that are decaying radioactively and releasing all this heat while they do so. And so because they didn't know about these elements in the Earth's crust releasing all this heat, when they tried to calculate the age of the Earth according to the laws of thermodynamics, the number they came up with initially was way too low. It was only like, sort of like... Like, I'm not actually going to say a number because I don't know what it was, but it was way too low. Um, And what this meant was they kind of were like, oh, the Earth is this old. Well, there's no way evolution could have happened in a significant way enough to produce us in such a small period of time. So evolution is wrong. Mm. So the whole scientific community was like, no, no, evolution is not possible. The Earth hasn't been around long enough for evolution to have taken place. And then later on, Marie Curie discovered radioactive elements, and then they realized, oh, these are all throughout the Earth's crust. And then they did the thermodynamic equations again and came up with a much more accurate age of the Earth. And they were like, oh, wait, okay, yeah, there is actually way more than enough time for evolution to happen. Mm. But you can kind of see how, like, it's not even like something is wrong and then it's right, or, like, you come out with something and then it takes a while to be accepted. It's like soft becomes comes out and everyone thinks it's silly and then everyone sees the logic in it but then new evidence appears so everyone rejects it and then even newer evidence appears and it becomes accepted again so like you know the knowledge creation process is actually very wibbly wobbly Mm timey-wimey this way that way kind of thing and you can see why that could affect especially people who aren't necessarily so immediately invested in that process how from the outside they can be like oh no you're all over the place you keep contradicting yourself like i'm not going to believe what say the scientific community says or what journalists say just because from the outside it can seem very well when upon a bit of closer inspection it can seem a lot less certain than it's initially sold to people as being Mm.
0: well i think this idea of the faith we can put in, say, the scientific community and the authority that it carries. Um, there's a really good lens for analysing what's going on at the moment, which is kind of like comes out in the thinking guy called Jordan Greenhall and mm-hmm. his ideas of like what he calls the blue church structure, mm-hmm. which is quite a complex phenomenon. I don't think I can explain all of it right now, but it kind of relates to a method of knowledge production and transfer within societies and basically the blue church is um it's what we think of when we think of um, academia universities science etc in that there is quite a rigid discipline that must be learned in order to uh, get credentials that the knowledge that you produce is worth listening to mm-hmm. the knowledge that comes out of these institutions because it comes out with these credentials is deemed to be um, worth listening to and thus, in general, doesn't have to be fact-checked by everybody else. I mean, it's a similar thing with journalism. The reason why we have journalists is so that not everybody has to investigate all the facts for themselves because there's far mm-hmm. too many going on. If you have like good, hard-working journalists who are uh, incentivized to try and find the truth and not let the, uh, what they're reporting be swung too much by bias, mm. then you get something that you can trust more or less as a news story similarly with the scientific method right you know Mm -hmm. the university structure you've got a few professors and society in general listens to them and students themselves students go to university to learn a bit of the method but also to to learn what has already been found out in a sense yes it's a very very effective technique for producing and disseminating good knowledge but it also traps you in this dynamic where information flow is pretty unidirectional and power tends to uh, accrue to a small minority right at the top. There's only a few mm. people relatively who, uh, who have the, the authority within the community to produce knowledge that is considered valid. And everybody else, it's kind of like, well, your opinions don't really matter. And that's true at the level of um, kind of like authority. Like you are the average guy in the street. Is um, he's not gonna be treated as seriously talking about history as, say, a professor of history at Oxford University, but also he's not gonna be invited onto Channel 4 News to talk about history in the same way a professor might be. Mm. So that plays out, but so as I said, it traps you in a position where most people. Don't really get a say in the knowledge production process of society except at a very, very low resolution level, which is conversations perhaps with friends and family. Yeah, more or less, you go to school and the teacher gives you information and you memorize it. And to the degree, degree to which you can memorize it, historical facts, what happened, or scientific facts and what happened, you can write those on the test, you can get the tick mark, and then you can go off and get a degree or get a job. Yeah, courted. works very well unless you want to have people thinking for themselves.
1: Yeah, it's okay. great for receiving information from, you know, an authoritative source, but to anyone who, basically, like, if you want to get involved, but you don't want to actually specifically join the apparatus that is there, it's it could be seen as quite oppressive. I mean, right. and- not, not, in, not in, like, a huge way, but just in, a, in a terms of, like, you don't have much power if you're not actually part of a, a an institution whose job it is to create knowledge like right?
0: until well and this is what's so interesting about our times is that this structure this blue church as he calls it the kind of unidirectional strictly hierarchical mode of producing and disseminating information has been supported by the medium that or the media that we have to communicate mm-hmm. if you think about uh, I'm talking about say like books here but also the format of say a lecture or a classroom with a teacher and students Mm -hmm. it's all set up like a book there is the book that you are reading someone has written the argument and you absorb the argument and maybe you think about it but you don't write back into the book you don't write your own book in tandem with the book similarly classroom right the teacher teaches and the students learn yes now we have interactive digital technology which means that everybody has a say and can self-publish their thoughts and opinions to a degree that's never been possible before Mm. pretty much in the past if you wanted if you had an opinion fine but if you wanted to talk about it with anybody other than your friends then you'd have to Either write a book and get a book deal, which involves going to a publisher, having people read your book and decide whether or not your message is worth spreading, or Mm. self-publish, which requires a certain degree of funding, and there's still no guarantee that anyone's going to read the book anyway.
1: Yeah, people also have to actually buy the book. And then even if people buy the book, people can publish other books about how wrong your book is. Exactly. Or you have to ascend one of these knowledge production hierarchies,
0: i.e. Either the sort of low resolution, well, the low definition, which is um, like schools, you've got to become a teacher. You become a teacher by being a recognized, like having enough proficiency at cer- certain topics or some topics to be able to teach at, say, high school level. Or you go one <laughs> level higher and become a university professor. And then you can really participate in knowledge production. You become an expert in a field. So you become an expert in Tudor history and your research in Tudor history might actually be considered valid and worth putting in history books and teaching to students not just your own students but students across the whole country Mm. but as i said unless you climb that hierarchy or produce a book or also manage to get a slot say on a radio station or on a tv show which again has huge barriers to entry because they only want certain voices and certain people on generally Mm. ones who are recognized as authorities Mm. otherwise you're stuck with only being able to talk to the people you can you can get to listen to you in real life. And that's where digital online technology has thrown a massive spanner in everything humanity's ever ever been able to do before this point.
1: Because now
0: pretty much you can write something or record something and post it and you can get hits on it. You and if it's good or if it's interesting or if it chimes with people, irrespective of any truth content,
1: yeah, it can go
0: viral. And you can become an overnight sensation without having to go through any of the
1: hierarchies or the barriers to entry into the ecosystem, yeah. which is like it's kind of a like very very sharp double-edged sword because you could see it as sort of freeing and now extending power to everyone and democratizing the system and getting rid of the hierarchy uh, if you're not into hierarchy and that kind of thing. But on the other hand, those barriers weren't just put there so that some people could be at the top and other people would have to be at the bottom. The idea of the barriers is that we can actually have, you know, we, 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 we can trust these people because we know they've gone through these barriers. And we know that if they've gone through these barriers, we have a Decent guarantee that the information they produce is going to be good information. Mm -hmm. And without any barriers, if we're just going to have, you know, in, in, in the new, more open information age, you get the problem that any information that appears on the surface similar to good information can end up being treated as good information when it's not. Which is. Which has a lot of far-reaching and very worrying implications. So, for example, one really good one. I was, I was watching, I was watching a, some kind of YouTube report or something, about it was about the Russian, um, secret services, the FSB. That's the successor to the KGB. Mm. And it was about, it was about fake news essentially, which is kind of you can obviously see how that would relate to what we just discussed. But it was specifically about how. Um, the KGB used to have this like system and only about like 30%, I think it was like, not a huge amount of their resources were dedicated to like espionage, like spying, you know, soldiers, sailor, tinker spy kind of thing. Most of it was dedicated towards, I can't remember what they called it. It was like subversion. Mm. It was just trying to find ways to just, break down like the opposing societies to try and like exploit the cracks in capitalism and make them wider. And one really obvious one was, um, some sort of conspiracy that someone in Arizona came up with that the U S government had genetically engineered AIDS and either accidentally let it out or intentionally let it out to try and attack the homosexual and the black population. Mm. Um, they, KGB found this and started disseminating it everywhere, especially in like African countries that started undergoing AIDS epidemics to try and get them to turn against the USA in the Cold War. And that's a good example of a story that, I mean, you know, I want to say that it's fake, but because of the times that we live in, I'm just going to say that it's a good example of taking information that is not verified, that hasn't gone through a process of verification, and then using it to achieve your own ends. But now, The internet has revolutionized this practice, and the FSB, which is the successor to the KGB, and remember, Putin used to be in the KGB, so he used Mm -hmm. to do all this stuff and spending loads of—they used to have exams, they used to have, like, monthly exams where you would have to submit ideas for how to subvert, (laughs) like— Opposing societies, and you would wow. get like grades based on how good of an idea to subvert an opposing society it was, and all kinds of. That sounds like it, it had, would be really fun. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like. Imagine that! Like you literally had to sit there coming up with like conspiracy theories, essentially being like, "Hmm, how can we like frame the <laughs> CIA or like the president as having done like this or that?" Way better you than know. most of the
0: essays I had to write. That <laughs>
1: literally. Yeah. Yeah. It would be freaking awesome. You could come up with all kinds of stuff. Like, Theresa May is secretly a robot. Or, like, you know, the EU doesn't exist. <laughs> it's a figment of our imaginations, man. The media just says that it exists. It's not actually there. Brussels is is just a field. <laughs> but, like, this was a real thing. And the Russians still do it. And there's one really obvious one that I actually saw loads of. I don't know if you did, but... Um did you ever hear about like how there's Hillary Clinton is running like a child sex ring out of the basement of like a pizza parlor in yeah, in like Washington. Yeah, you yeah, heard that, that one. Was super and that was that was huge. And um you know the pizza parlor that they were saying it was, it didn't have a basement. <laughs> so like the story was pretty ludicrous. Mm. And um, basically when they sort of researched the sources, it all has like this sort of hint of like Russianness. like in some of the original documents that kind of was said, a a lot of it was based on emails that were hacked out of one of Hillary Clinton's secretary's servers by Russian hackers or something like that. And then a lot of sort of the initial stuff written on the story has all of these spelling and grammar mistakes that are very common among people who have Russian as a first language and English as a second language. Mm. So there's all this kind of stuff that is kind of like, uh, it sort of looks like this is a Russian intelligence op. And then also the whole story was kind of like, basically it was fake. Like, you know, they actually investigated this pizza parlour and they found no evidence of anything, you know. Um, But it does kind of have the smackings of the kind of thing that you would imagine, like a Russian FSB agent, like writing his monthly like conspiracy essay on and it happened right before the election but the the really big thing about it is like the aids thing you know the the u.s government Mm. engineered aids that like it started in arizona and then it like spread to other places and then it started getting reported in africa and then like south america and then eventually made its way onto u.s television like like eight years after the original story it took the kgb like ages and ages to get the ball rolling yeah whereas with the internet you can do it right away <laughs> yeah you have immediate access the moment you've got your conspiracy to manipulate public opinion set in place it's like bang let's go and like like literally in like online forums that i go on like i i like within like two or three days i had like heard of it in online forums and then like two or three days after that there was like i was seeing it on tv mm. you know and so to loop this all the way back to what we were saying originally about how information that hasn't passed through these barriers, that if people out there are willing to accept and treat as good, or at least close to being as good as, you know, this sort of hierarchically produced information, just abstract information that's out there is just spreading through the net, this opens up a world of possibilities to people who want to manipulate public opinion because mm. all of a sudden stuff that would have gotten all the barriers that are meant to make sure that you could only manipulate public opinion in a way that's kind of fair are gone. Mm-hmm. It's information warfare. That's mm-hmm. really what it
0: is. I mean, like, you know, I was reading a, um, an extended blog recently. I can't remember where it was. It might have been on a website called Ribbon Farm, but at any rate. It's kind of making the point that people think the Cold War ended, but no, just the frontiers changed. Like, Mm. information warfare is just where it's at these days.
1: Mm.
0: And I think there was the assumption in the early days of kind of like the internet that digital warfare would be like hackers taking down infrastructure, like taking Mm. down the power network or communications network, whatever doesn't have to be that way. It it happens on the public forums, It happens on Facebook and Twitter. Literally. Because you can literally turn the hearts and minds of people against the nation mm. without any, well, just by faking, by pretending to be someone and sowing seeds of, uh, of discontent. Yeah, or you
1: just know. like going on Facebook and just paying for adverts for your political candidate to be targeted at X group, except you're the head of the Russian intelligence services and you're paying for Facebook to put on adverts for an American presidential candidate, you know? So, like, it's... Um, and actually, the, the um, in this book again, Nervous States, he, he says exactly this, that if you interpret war as, like, fighting and armies and declarations, then it's not a war. But Hobbes has this theory of war. W-A-R-R-E. And I actually wrote a bunch of essays on it. And the, the state of war is um, basically when, like, just social institutions that can create trust and peace and cohesion, the truth breaks down and no one can trust anyone, and everyone is in this state of not necessarily actual and direct conflict, but suspicion of potential conflict mm-hmm. with one another. Yeah? And it basically makes cohesive society impossible, according mm-hmm. to Hans. And in a way, the internet brings us closer to the state of war because in the state of war nothing is certain everything is temporary everything moves everything is like you know it it you know information is only good for so long you don't know if you can trust your information you have to make decisions quickly and based on sort of you know abstract ideas of what is going on now if you have a hierarchical information production structure that everyone accepts then information is certain it comes out and it just sits there it's a There it is, and no one has to worry, and no one has to—we can all have, like, trust, yeah? But the internet actually much better resembles the state of war. Because, again, in an actual war, you have this. Generals have to make assessments as to whether the information in front of them is accurate, yeah? And it's like, oh, we detected enemy tanks there. Well, you need to do something about that now— Because tomorrow the tanks are not going to be there anymore, are they? Mm. Yeah, or, you know, we detected enemy spies here, we detected leaks there. And so information is temporary and you have to react quickly based on a sort of abstract idea of what is going on. And you don't know who to trust. And not only that, you're engaged in a constant attempt to deceive your enemies so they can have bad information and you can have an advantage. And that's kind of what goes on on the internet. (laughs) I agree. I think
0: one point to make, though, is that what you've kind of described is like, what you do if you are an information warrior exactly the average person is not an information warrior the average person is still in the fairly kind of like blue church receptive mode for receiving information which, Mm. which they're expecting to get good quality information and be able to rely on it and fair enough i mean like most of us haven't got time to fact check everything most of us don't like we see an article about the like most recent uh, like you know there's a thing i don't know like the political turmoil in sudan and you read Mm. an article you don't think well i'm gonna go read like 15 articles on this and check Mm. you just want to be able to read it and go like okay well that's
1: happening yeah i've got to like make dinner now (laughs) yeah exactly and like i'm kind of lucky because i actually like i do literally do that Mm. i'll read an article i'll be like oh but is that really the case then i'll go and i'll like look up other articles on the same thing and then look up like the history of the thing and be like you know try and work out if something is true but that's because i enjoy it and it's like a fairly time-consuming thing to do exactly like it's
0: I, i i do think in some sense that's kind of like those are the skills we need to be developing humanity and that's really what perhaps we should even be teaching kids to do in school rather than teaching them to memorise facts But yeah. to, like use online that's tools to verify point. facts Like your exam should be like right here is an article write a response to this article based on what you're able to find mm. referencing at least 15 online sources you have Google available to you
1: mm, mm, mm. but in fact we actually did something slightly like that in biology class we did a I think it was in biology. We were asked to write a critique of. I think it was. I'm not sure if I chose it or if everyone had to do it, but I did mine on um, an inconvenient truth because I was like, like 13, and I was going through that sort of phase of like, climate change doesn't real. <laughs> like, the climate is exactly the same as it's always been. Um, or at least you know, human. So like, I, I had that phase. Really? Maybe. Oh, good. <laughs> that's, that's an embarrassing one. I mean, like, it's good to be sceptical. Although at the same stuff, time, like, like, I've just
0: never really been sceptical about climate change. I've yeah. I've really just kind of been like,
1: yeah, seems like it's probably a problem. Mm. Like, but that's kind of the thing, is like, the blue church has told you exactly. that, so- that the climate is changing because of human because of the stuff we're doing. You and the deniers shouldn't be
0: listened to because they're deniers, man. Like, don't yeah. fucking associate with those stupid deniers.
1: Yeah, it's so you true. you can see that's how the
0: blue church works, right? I mean, it's sort of a... Because the people who disagree are painted as climate change deniers. It's not I like guess... these guys are factually wrong. It's like, these guys are morons. <laughs> <laughs> it's different.
1: I mean, that's the question, though, is like, What is the correct attitude to take towards at least if you're from the standpoint of a hierarchical structure like if someone disagrees with you within the confines of someone else who's in the hierarchical structure who follows the formula disagrees with you that's kind of fine like you know it's, it's kind of meant to be like a gentlemanly dispute that you resolve without invoking like Feelings essentially, so it's all be rational. Mm. But then, what if someone like builds a whole social movement about like you're wrong that either really badly or doesn't even at all engage with information that's being through the correct production process? Then yeah, you kind of do just have to be like, oh they're idiots. But which maybe they even are. But that in a way is gonna only foster further hostility to your system of information production to begin with. Yeah, especially when their whole position is like the mainstream is wrong. Yeah, and which then is then a tempting the main, one always. And then
0: that's where, <clears> where like that's what fosters the conspiracy mindset. It's like look at how the mainstream are reacting to us. They clearly
1: we're clearly right. Like, yeah, there would be, be right. this much pushback if we weren't right. Yeah, and then like and then there's always yeah. that sort of like that just like appeal of just like what if everyone was wrong and you're right like everyone is wrong and i'm right i'm better than everyone else yes you know that ego right yeah exactly and and then the thing is is like it has happened like there are times when like one person stands up and goes like no you're wrong and then they're correct and galileo yeah like galileo like (laughs) um the guys we spoke about earlier Yeah, or the guys we spoke about earlier, yeah, or, like, um, uh, anyway, the point is that it happens. Mm. Um, and so, like, you know, how do we move forward from this situation, essentially? Like, you know, the old hierarchical, certain, rational, but also very sort of slow-moving and, like, not transparent to, like it is transparent, but in order to actually see through it, you have to spend years of your life studying stuff, you know, Mm. where, so it's not transparent to the average person. Um, so that structure is kind of under attack from like sort of the new information age of just like information everywhere, like whatever kind of information you want, whatever opinion you have, you can go and find someone out there who agrees with you Mm. kind of thing. And they both have their flaws. How do we move forward? So here's, well,
0: this isn't a solution, but something interesting that, uh, again, Jordan Greenhall, the same guy who suggests the like, idea of the blue church, he's discussing, do you know about
1: QAnon, the, uh, the
0: online forum?
1: Is that just, that's just a conspiracy theories forum? Or well, I saw the Jim Jefferies QAnon one it's
0: kind of it's kind of conspiracy theories but it's it's more like people just write any interpretation of the facts like there's there's like a a thread and Mm. everything on it is just like people thinking and it's kind of like just this like mass attempt of a collective mind to sift through so many different possible interpretations of the data mainstream theories conspiracy theories things that have just come out on the fly yeah. And he says, like, well, his idea was that at the moment all this is able to produce is just, like, raw chaos.
1: Yeah, like, It's
0: just, like, basically, like, conspiracy theory on overdrive. Like, Yeah. But what if this starts to, like many systems, like, a certain type of order starts to emerge from this chaos, and somehow the sort of, like, collective mind finds a way to synthesize whatever, whatever is going on there to find new solutions to these problems that actually have some kind
1: of truthful validity to them. But what would be the sort of origin of that truthful validity? Like consensus or like kind of, I mean, it's hard to say. I don't really know. Okay. It's just,
0: it's uh it's an interesting thing that's going on. that I think uh, it's worth it. Keeping tabs on and he's certainly keeping tabs on it. Hmm. Um, but, to kind of like reverse a little bit, how do we move forwards in in an information ecosystem that 's really my favorite term for all of this stuff the information mm-hmm. the ecosystem. How do we deal with an e- information ecosystem that has suddenly like expanded so much in the last twenty years? Well, I think it really does involve to a certain degree. Trying to be more like information warriors in the trying to verify things for ourselves, mm-hmm. but also just letting go of our desire to be right, being very willing to be criticised and to, to be pointed out where you're wrong, mm. and to go into discussions where people ask you to to outline how you reached a conclusion, mm-hmm. which is something that I don't really think people are necessarily very well set up to do and don't really enjoy it and fair enough i mean it's kind of like it's always a bit disconcerting when you're making a point and then someone's like hang on like explain that or like i don't really believe that
1: yeah and then you're like oh shit i actually i mean i'm a big fan of sort of doing that i'm a big fan of like i'm like sort of listening to someone really well and then like finding sort of the weakest link in the chain that is their yeah. argument and breaking it and then, and then, and then
0: I, I enjoy when you do that to me <laughs> although it does throw me off it makes me go like ah yeah because it's like, also it makes, oh crap it, it sows the seed of doubt because i've been like well i've been running with this as like kind of an assumption and yeah now i've got to go back and check my assumption and we'll see if it works through for somebody else yeah but i think it's what it's very good at doing, like you have, it's about ego, really, because it's your ego that wants to be right and doesn't want other people to think you're wrong. And mm. It's kind of like a dominance thing. Like if you're right and other people accept that you're right, then then you've kind of like you stand somewhere in a hierarchy, right? Yeah, you have. You, sort of, you have some kind of title, like you're like you're knowledgeable
1: and people yeah. think you're wise, and you're gonna have power in a way because what you say is gonna be accepted by people and in a way that means you're shaping the world that they think that they live in Mm. and so you know power is a desirable thing for many many people so you can kind of see why and and then sort of in a way then being shown to be wrong about something tracks from that and so you can kind of see why people a lot of the time don't want to be wrong about stuff and I'm more committed to that than to necessarily trying to find out some sort of wider objective truth, Mm. you know, and trying to contribute to a process of creating that They're sort of more concerned with like their social position within whatever process that there is than the integrity of the process as a whole. But then I think, In a way, ideally if we could have a society where people are like more involved in the informational process of like verifying information and so by feeling like they've had a say in information verification then people are going to be more inclined to trust a process that they feel like they're a part of. Mm. But you could kind of look at the new information age and the digital medium is an attempt that, that, that's sort of ended up being counterproductive. So, you know, it's a, it's a tricky one because we have to try and accept the existence of the digital medium and potentially try and harness it in a way that hopefully will improve our overall ability to produce and disseminate good knowledge. But there's 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 serious pitfalls um, about opening up the knowledge creation process. Because in a way, you could look at it as being like, the reason it's such a good process is because it is so closed. Because we only entrust knowledge creation to the best people, we produce the best knowledge.
0: Yeah. Well, do you know, so the, a way I've been thinking about it, Um, is that maybe it's actually like humanity is going through something akin to moving from being a little kid into being a teenager. Mm. And so let me explain this. So when you're a little kid, you're pretty much like you run around and you play and your job is really to just like not die, have fun and learn some stuff. Mm. And your parents are involved in dealing with all of the responsibilities, actually kind of like working out what you're doing with your life, educating you. Mm. Your parents do the hard work, basically. And then you go into being a teenager where all of a sudden you you basically start to push the boundaries. You're trying to work out how you work this thing for yourself, how you be Mm -hmm. an adult human. And basically being a teenager involves doing a lot of fucking stupid shit, making a lot of mistakes and hopefully, again, not killing yourself. Mm -hmm. although your risk of dying as a teenager is probably quite a lot higher than it is as a small kid whether it's Mm -hmm. from like doing stupid shit while pissed or from like mental health crisis because you've started to actually worry about who you are as a person which Mm -hmm. you didn't worry about before now you can see this as analogous to like the blue church structure traditional information production structures are kind of the parents of society Mm -hmm. so for a long time basically Everyone has been being parented by the select few who run academia and journalism, and basically hmm. produce the information that everybody else uses. Yeah, and that and everybody else has kind of just been a kid in terms of the information. They yeah. just take the information and live their lives and try yeah. not to fuck up too hard. Yeah, yeah. Meantime. And now finally, we've got the we've got the technology that empowers the everyday day person to kind of take a step up and it's like well, well now you get to have a play at
1: this yourself
0: yeah but we're in the early days of being a teenager yeah we're well, kind of like
1: 15 essentially
0: yeah and I think but I think if there is some like merit to this way of looking at it it's that maybe there is like a positive curve towards this like mm. where we are at right now it's chaos it's it's new' And it's raw, and it's like it's like a whole injection of testosterone into your system. You don't really know what to do, and like you're yeah. 13 and all you want to do is like wank and tell your parents to fuck off. And play video games and go to parties, and like. It, and it's a very narcissistic, egoistic time because you think you're right and you don't want anybody else to tell you otherwise, which yeah. relates to some degree kind of what's going on with the echo chamber phenomenon.
1: Yeah, and also just generally to kind of like sort of these. Weird movements that, sort of, from the parental old knowledge, old knowledge production system perspective, are like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, you know, like flat Earth, and then the new one, um, space isn't real, that even flat Earth think is stupid, and um, uh, stuff like you know, Sandy Hook didn't happen. Um, All of this, just like people who are just coming out with these most utterly crazy weird statements about how what the world that they think that they live in is like it's kind of like that sort of 14 year old hang-up of like i don't understand why i'm not allowed to like buy a liter of vodka and just like drink it or like i you know you can't tell me like not to play my music really loud and it's only when you turn like sort of like i mean i guess different people it happens at different ages But, you know, and some people, it never and That's a bit worrying. But um, eventually, you you know, you are going to hit a point of, like, hopefully, like, being kept up by someone else's music and being like, oh, hey, like, when it's not my music that's being played, all of a sudden the whole loud music thing is a lot less enjoyable, you know? And in the same way, like, or like, oh, hey, like, now that I've, like, being horrifically hung over a whole ton of times and also now that i've like had a good enjoyable social time without the assistance of huge amounts of alcohol or substances like maybe that isn't actually a great idea buying all that vodka or all of that ketamine or you know cocaine or this that or whatever maybe and so like you know it's but then if you think about how that happened to everyone how we all arrived at that stage of of kind of coming to those conclusions about behavior it did take a while <laughs>
0: mm. there's the teething phase or the kind of what like, under teenagers is kind of like a second teething phase yeah and so maybe that's where we're at societally right now i think it's actually a really, really good wet lens of looking it through like we've got this new technology that empowers the everyday information subject of information consumer in a way that's never been done before mm-hmm. and there's going to be a certain degree of chaos and pain and wild and an adrenaline-filled experiences that probably humanity looks back on in 200 years and goes like if it's still here and goes what the fuck were they doing there mm-hmm. how did that tangent happen mm. i wonder if there's anything else we can learn from thinking through this lens it's like as a parent trying to manage the teenage years, I mean, it's a really tough time, I think, for like everybody because the parents are kind of have to like take a step back and watch this person who they've kind of like invested a whole lot of time and mental energy in now just fucking do a load of stupid shit. Mm-hmm. And some parents are kind of like, OK, well, you make your mistakes and you go and I'm going to support you through it. And other parents are like, no, you're wrong. I'm going to try and keep the sort of like home hierarchy in place for as long as I can. Yeah. Which is really what discipline is, right? It's like, I'm still the authority and you do what I say. And you're grounded and you're not getting your allowance or anything like that. Mm. I think society, we need to kind of establish this relationship between the the knowledge production structures. um, The sort of like the old guard, where they encourage and foster the development of the sort of new god and don't just try and other it yeah don't just be like well if you haven't got the university accreditation or a journal write for a established paper you're, you still have something to say and i do think that is the case that is recognized yeah but the most important thing is like not just set up more of an antagonism than there needs to be mm. but there does seem to be a big antagonism i mean like You know, the thing Michael Gove famously said, this country's had enough of experts. Oh, yeah. Which kind of... It was many years ago, but it was almost prophetic, really. Yeah. Not just about this country, but it was kind of like a very accurate description of the times. Like, humanity has had enough of experts.
1: In a way. Although, there's the kind of thing of, like, the feeling of, like, oh, we've had enough of experts. And the reality of, like, you know, you just type that into an internet form and, like, using a computer. Mm. So, like, I feel like you could look at it as that kind of, like, teenage rebellious phase. Of, like, oh, I've had enough of rules and I'm going to stop following the rules, like, just because I feel like I've had enough of rules. But then you're going to get a bit older and you're just going to start voluntarily following the rules because you see the value in them, mm. you know? So... Like, yeah, it's about limiting the antagonism. I definitely agree with that. It's about like allowing society the freedom to feel like they're not just being talked down to by the establishment. But you kind of have to like walk the line of like we don't want them to feel like they're being constrained. We don't want we don't want information. You know, we don't we don't want to be placing draconian restrictions. That are only going to make people question things even more. But on the flip side, we have to reel in the excesses.
0: Yeah. And just be like, flat earthers, go with it.
1: Yeah. And all like, I guess, okay, the worst one for me is anti-vax. Because, like, with anti-vaccinations, the thing is, when you don't vaccinate your child, that's not just bad for your child. That's bad for every child that isn't vaccinated. Because herd immunity only works as in... We have what's called herd immunity, which means even if you're not vaccinated, you're fine because everyone else is vaccinated. So you're not going to run into someone who has that disease. So you're never going to catch it. And that's fine, yeah. you know? But there are some people who can't get vaccinated for various medical reasons. And those people are only safe because everyone who can get vaccinated is vaccinated. Mm. And once we drop below, and it like depends on the disease, once you drop below the herd immunity level then it's like, okay, you're not vaccinated and, like, you know, you get on a train packed full of people, yeah? And if someone else is on there with that disease, like, you're going to catch it. And if that's because you can't get vaccinated and the person who you caught it from chose not to get vaccinated, it's like their choice to not get vaccinated or their parents' choice to not vaccinate them has detrimentally affected people who had no say in any of that. Mm. And so that's actually, like, you know, bad information, that propagates through the internet that actually harms people in society and like there was actually a sort of quite well-reported outbreak of measles in a somali community in some city in the usa that and the somali community had been basically they're always anti-vaccinated come and encouraged all these somali parents to not vaccinate their children there was an outbreak of measles and then another one is there was a child in an italian hospital who died because he wasn't vaccinated because he couldn't get vaccinated because of medical conditions. Mm. But his, his, one of his, I think one of his brothers came to visit him in the hospital who was vaccinatable, but unvaccinated because the parents didn't want to vaccinate him, carrying some disease that the other brother caught and he then died. Mm. So like, and that's like, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. It's not something that's going to destroy our society. But it's an example of how propagation of bad information can have real human consequences. And unnecessary harm. I
0: think that's the thing as well. It's just, like, the stuff we're vaccinating against needn't kill anybody. Exactly. And needn't
1: have the effects it does. And, like, flat Earth is fine because, like, it doesn't negatively affect anyone else for you to think that the Earth is flat. Yes. And even if you want to, like, build yourself a rocket and fire yourself into space, like that one guy did to try and confirm whether or not there was the, there was or wasn't the curvature of the Earth, at least he's only firing himself into space, that's up to him, you know, that's cool. But if you're doing something that's going to have negative effects on the people around you, based on bad information, that's kind of a different level. And
0: people are invested in this shit, man, it's like, you watch the uh, the podcast that Joe Rogan did recently with Alex Jones and Eddie Bravo. And it's so funny because uh, obviously they're like two massive conspiracy theorists, Eddie I've never heard of Eddie Bravo. Eddie Bravo. Um, so he's, um, I suppose like he's most famous for being a Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter. He's, like, yeah. Like, he started a jiu- jiu- jiu-jitsu school called Tenth Planet, but he's also like massive into flat earth. Yeah. And uh, Alex Jones is there saying like, Right, Eddie, we're gonna go to the fucking pole. I'm gonna buy a fucking uh, a cruise ship. We're gonna go to the pole. We're gonna see the Earth is curved. Like,
1: <laughs> no, man, I'm too scared. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jokes! I'm too scared. And then, like, yeah, and then there's um, there was some like thing where they got a bunch of flat earthers and like put them on a flight that flew up like way, way, way higher than normal planes do, so that they could actually see the curvature of the Earth. And then, like. Some of them were like, Okay, fine, the earth is curved. But then you kinda like had like A, it was like, Oh, the earth is curved a little bit. It's <laughs> not a sphere, it's just a little just bit like curved. A- <laughs> yeah. And then you and then you have the other ones of like, oh no, like, you know, the window was curved, so it distorted the light <laughs> or like, oh like, you know, this this, that and the other, right? Mm-hmm. Um so like, you know, Yeah, There's always going to be people out there who believe that kind of stuff. And that's fine if it doesn't affect their decision-making too much. (laughs) You know? Um, And like, I actually saw a very interesting piece by, I think it was by Vice, I'm not sure, where they went to a flat-earth convention. And rather than just taking the piss out of them, they actually came up with this kind of interesting sort of philosophical explanation for the flat-earth movement which is basically the one thing that all flat earthers seem to agree on is basically the sort of primary nature of human experience. In other words, that like, if you didn't see it, you can't say anything about it. Mm-hmm. And not only that, there's no way for me to know that you're not lying when you say that you saw it. So basically, it's, you can kind of think about it as... as, as total rejection of any knowledge infrastructure whatsoever and just being like, I believe in the world that I am and have, am perceiving and have perceived and not beyond that basically. So, and then when you kind of see the world that way it's when you kind of look at the movement that way and from that idea of knowledge of epistemology that epistemological position, then it's you know easier to empathize with these people you know it's yeah. kind of like okay well you know what you can see the world that way and that's a cool position and i think you're wrong but we don't have to argue about it and another good example as well of that actually predates me seeing the documentary is while i was in um bolivia mm. i was staying with this um dude who um I don't want to say that he was a shaman because i'm not like 100 sure i don't know what the credentials are to being a shaman and i don't think he ever said to me that he was a shaman but he lives in a house he built himself way off in the rainforest so you know um he's pretty, out there, <laughs> pretty yeah. out there yeah um and he definitely loves his ayahuasca um or not loves it but it's a big part of his life so um and south americans i love conspiracy theories man they're, they're all about but,
0: um, and flat Earth. Iron Maiden and conspiracy theories.
1: Yeah, <laughs> what? <laughs> Iron Maiden and conspiracy theories. Iron Maiden. Quite a mix. Um, and cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, so South Americans are fairly big into flat Earth. I mean, okay, not, not all South Americans, but I ran into a fair amount of South mm. Americans who are big into flat Earth. And he was one of them, and I was like, you know, I kind of said to him, like, what do you think of it? And he actually, like, a, a, a lot of, because a lot of the people I run into are into flat earth are Argentinians, and Argentinians are very, like... <laughs> I don't want to say anything that's too... I don't want to label a group of people too much, but Argentinians are, like... <laughs> you get what I mean? So um, so they are all, like, how can you possibly believe NASA, blah, blah, blah. But this guy is, like, this Bolivian dude who lives, like, out in the jungle. Mm. And he was kind of, like, oh, like, you know, like... No, I understand that, like, you know, all these space agencies, like, you know, apparently send people into space, and according to them, the Earth is round. And, like, you know, that's cool, but, like, I live here in my house in the jungle, yeah? <laughs> and, like, you know, I've biked around South America a bit, but I've, like, I don't think he, I, I think he's never be, even been on a plane. Mm. So he basically said, like, you know, I don't really, I don't see myself as being in a position to say anything about the whole world, but the world that I live in is flat. Mm. But when you think about it that way, it's like, oh, okay, that actually makes sense. You know, I can actually empathize with that opinion and I can, you know, I'm, I, I don't feel a burning desire to prove you wrong when you say that, you know, yeah. I actually kind of am like, oh, that's an interesting and legitimate way of looking at the world. So you got me thinking
0: about, well, knowledge, right? And I guess certainly as it seems to me, one of the big issues is that most of the stuff that we know.
1: No, we really only believe. It's- oh whoa, oh, okay, oh, and like you wanna go that deep, like fair enough, okay, but just saying you're opening a you're opening another box of frogs there, <laughs> yeah, yeah. man, let's- <laughs> okay, let's do sure, yeah, that is essentially true. This is the greatest sort of problem of epistemology, which is like how do you even know a thing? Yeah. Like And, and I think Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's like because, I mean, as you've said, really the only things that, well, I have to be very careful with my words here, because I don't really want to say, I was going to say the only things I know are my senses, but that's to say no.
1: Yeah, because you would know, or, I think trust is also a good one, if yeah. you want to, because that kind of implies not so much that you're describing it certainty, but just that you describe it reliability. Use
0: a concrete example. Yeah. The world's, versus round versus flat
1: yeah
0: to most people i'd say the world is flat and i know that but how do i know it because well really because i accept scientific consensus that it's flat that it's round. oh that it's round round. yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, i'm a (laughs) 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 flat. oh jokes man yeah Um, how you feel about it no no look the
1: water is curved and i mean
0: i've looked at some pictures and mm. seen the footage of the moon landing which I take to have happened
1: mm-hmm. but how what do you t- no no exactly. like how do you like I mean you can kind of say that it's too reductionist you can kind of be like you know is it really the case that like you know because people have you know, thought that the world was around for a long time like long long time and you know the idea that there's some kind of you have to venture into the area of conspiracy theories to really substantiate that in other words you have to basically be like people have been either intentionally deceiving society for hundreds of years or that like, our current methods of producing knowledge is just so completely flawed that we've managed to find some way of just propagating this total and utter misconception for, again, hundreds of years.
0: Or well, there's a big conspiracy of everybody engaged in knowledge production who are doing it yeah. to dupe
1: the masses. Yeah, to do the masses so that NASA can have all this money to rubble over their naked bodies or whatever. Either we're um, wrong or everyone's fucking with us. Yeah. But then, like, you know that gets you into the sort of problem of how do i if someone says something happened how do i know that it happened you know <clears throat> let's you know there's there's a famous example of like <clears throat> these three illiterate orphans in spain claimed to see a vision of the virgin mary mm-hmm. and then like a, like 20 people came and then they all had a vision of the virgin mary Like two hundred people came and they all had a vision of the Virgin Mary, and then eventually like ten thousand people came and they all had a collective vision of the Virgin Mary. So, um, and then it's like, okay, well, that's a pretty big group of people to all say that they've had a vision, you know, a vision of the Virgin Mary. So, you know, that the if you're going to come from the perspective of like, oh, well, if there's enough consensus that something happened, then it's a fact. Well, there's pretty big consensus from everyone who's there that the Virgin Mary appeared. So, um, and, you know, I think to both of us and to a lot of people watching, it's kind of like, what, really? Did the Virgin Mary really appear? Well, I would throw out,
0: though, I don't know, maybe this will derail it a bit, but, like, what does it mean for the Virgin Mary to appear? Like, if you're referring to an actual figure appearing in space before you well I might be skeptical but I do believe in the kind of experience of archetypal figures which I think are what have taken shape in various mythologies across the world as gods and goddesses there is kind of like a divine maternal figure in our deep collective unconscious hmm. that I think when people report they have had an encounter with say the Virgin Mary but also like uh, Mesopotamian moder- mother goddesses or whatever that's what they're accessing like I do believe there is something which has been conceptualized as the interaction with the Virgin Mary but actually it's much more meta than that
1: yeah but these people don't say that we interacted yeah. with the, yeah, no, 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 the deep seated ideal that's a whole other saying, kind of word yeah that's another kind of word own... but that's also kind of a good one which is like well you know the, 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 the that is kind of a good explanation for maybe what these people saw yeah but are you then prescribed the position of someone who is able to explain someone else's experiences to them? And doesn't that kind of imply that some people are, you know, you know, that doesn't that ascribe you a higher position in knowledge production because people come to you with their experiences, then you go like, ah, this is what was really going on, and I know that you think that you saw specifically Mary, Mother of Christ, descending from. Literal heaven where the god like Yahweh or Jehovah or whatever Mm. like sits with his angels in the circles of everything and like, um. But no, it's actually like this archetype. But the thing
0: is, I would say it's not me saying, but no. Okay, yeah. Because it's like, yes, you did that, and that is. I mean, I suppose I just it's like I'm adding on a little bit extra. Yeah, I'm not saying that what you thought you saw was this, but actually it was the archetype and you were just deceived. It's no, like the arch- this is the thing about the, the archetype has to take a form. Yeah. And so when you saw, as you said, like, like Virgin Mary, Mother of Jesus, then you really did see that, or at least you experienced it, mm-hmm. because that is the way that your culture and your language and your spiritual upbringing has taught you to relate to this archetype. Mm -hmm. because the archetype doesn't really manifest just as an abstract Mm -hmm. because it wouldn't be like you couldn't conceive of it Mm -hmm. because I think that's how the theory of archetypes was reached that was cross-cultural study of mythology and religion Mm -hmm. and then being like okay so there's patterns that come up again and again and again like the idea of a great mother mother goddess Mm -hmm. and often it has a kind of like virginal not always but again it has a face like yeah I think and that's actually why I think certainly in a lot of like pantheistic religions there's this idea that gods have faces and like multi-faced goddesses. I I think that's the best way to think of it is that like yes the things that we call gods have faces and we interact with different faces and different cultures are perhaps shaped by the degree to which they interact with different faces of the god cool anyway that's just like thinking on the fly yeah
1: but then so then 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 there's a good epistemological question that can arise around this, which is like what type of existence does that archetype then really occupy? Because it's is it a material thing in the real world? Is it an imagined thing that exists in the heads of the people who know about it? Is it a sort of meta-imagination that exists in the heads of everyone who is alive and has lived? But then does that make it a knowable thing? Like if it's some sort of hidden like thing in the back of our minds, like sort of beneath the consciousness that we directly perceive, can we really like have actual knowledge about that? I mean, it's a fucking hard question, man.
0: I mean, like you can make it easier. I go like, like, think of an elephant. Is that thought you're
1: thinking real? No, but there are real elephants out there.
0: No, but is that thought
1: real? What? A bit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, man, shit. Um,
1: well, I can be like a flat earther and be like, I experienced the thought so I know that it exists. And see, so like, we forget any positive content, any real world content—is yeah. a is thought a
0: real? Is something that occurs thing, in the mind real, and is a dream real?
1: Like, I contend that dreams are fairly real. Like, it's represent—it's sort of a—it's a representation of—it's your mind representing what's going on in it to you. Mm. So it is a real representation, an abstract, but real representation of the inside of your mind. But it kind of occupies the same sort of, oh, but is it really real kind of space as, say, the Mother Earth virgin archetype, or, say, the abstract idea of, say, a square, Mm. you know? Yeah, I think that's.
0: Is this tough thing, there's different degrees of real.
1: Yeah. I think
0: there's like there's concrete or materially real in the sense that I think that this chair is real. It's out there. Like I'm sitting on this chair and I can see this chair, but I'm pretty sure that you could sit on this chair and that Mm -hmm. you could you can see this chair. Then there's my dream last night, which I saw, and I can remember, but you can't see, and which you can't remember, and it is real for me, Mm -hmm. but it's real in a different way to the way that this chair is real, Mm -hmm. and then there's also an archetype, which is, I suppose, a figure of a kind of collective unconscious, which is something that is kind of real for all people somewhere Hmm. in there
1: Hmm.
0: i think maybe distinguishing between like archetypes and thoughts is difficult because we have to actually subscribe to a theory of archetypes which is a whole like i mean like you go into there's massive debate over like whether anything you wrote was true i happen to believe it is
1: believe it is true is that what you you believe that it is true yeah does that in a way imply that you conceive of truth as a property independent of belief or property requiring belief or as literally being belief
0: i think and this is a scary thing to contend with but i think truth is mostly we believe something and that doesn't mean everything we believe is true but i think
1: it's very truth is a category of belief it's a type of belief in something
0: Ah, it's tough because there is stuff that materially seems to be more true than other things that like like what would i say like like if i sit on this chair then i don't pass through it and that's true for me but if you sit on this chair you don't pass through it Which means, like, there's something that multiple observers can perceive. Yes, and so it's got that. There's an objective criteria by which we can guarantee the truthfulness of the claim that this chair will support someone's weight. Mm -hmm. But if I'm then to like just stand up and look at the chair and start thinking, if I sit down on that chair, will it support my weight? There may be that objective way of verifying it but I have to believe that objective truth, I have to do something subjective mm-hmm. so there's kind of two components to it I think I think there is truth that exists but the proper stance of relating to it as a person is to put faith in it
1: mm-hmm. well That's a good stance towards truth. Like, you definitely get a lot worse than that. But then, and just to be overly critical, Mm -hmm. is it possible to make something true simply by having enough faith in it?
0: Depends what we mean by true,
1: Mm, mm. (laughs) which
0: is kind of the crux of it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, like it's like if you've got sixty thousand people who think they're witnessing an apparition of the Virgin Mary, it's certainly true that you've got sixty thousand people thinking that they're witnessing an apparition of the Virgin Mary. Um, So... So perhaps experiencing that, so that there is some degree of truth in that experience. But then in other cases, it's like if I just went round and told everybody that I could jump off the roof and fly Mm. and managed to get a hundred thousand people to believe it,
1: it wouldn't wouldn't be true. All it
0: would be true is that I've got a hundred thousand people who believe that. Yeah. There's an idea that has lodged itself in multiple people's minds. Hmm. So the truth of the, the idea would be, True in the sense that it exists. Yeah. But not true in the sense that it might have any... Um, Predictive power. Yeah, any like actual objective validity, real-world yeah. validity.
1: Which is like... An interesting one to think about is kind of like... Something can be considered true if you can make predictions based on it. Mm. In a way. Because like regardless of sort of there, there are some slight holes in that one which is that like if you can make some predictions but not other predictions and what if you have two theories one of which explains one half but not the other half and the other one explains the other half but not the first half but that's nice because then you can rank your theories in terms of how good the predictions are how often it's accurate. And then you can also make your theories a bit more temporal by having them be like, oh, this one works under these circumstances. Mm. And you can know that under those circumstances it's going to work. And then you can know that under other circumstances it's not going to work. And that's really nice. Um, But then you kind of end up with this like wibbly-wobbly sort of body of theories that constantly changes, which kind of gives you the problem that most people tend to think of truth as being something that's fairly concrete. Whereas this model, which is more or less the scientific one, is a body of truth that is actually completely open to change and is actually quite sort of contingent, you know. Mm-hmm. It, 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 the truth, in, when you're looking at one thing in one way, the sort of truth or the true theory or the sort of closest approximation of a true theory can be utterly different and even contradictory to the theory that governs another thing. And so, I guess, for me, like, I'm kind of down for all that, but I feel like that doesn't actually speak to a kind of notion of, like, capital T truth. I feel like that's just a bunch of nice, useful models. Capital T truth, to me, is, like, I do think there is an objective material universe Mm. And, and when I say material, I, I, I mean on sort of many, many levels, not just in terms of like atoms and that. But there's an objective universe out there, but our, perce- our ability to perceive that universe is is not sort of complete. I feel like in order to have a sense of individuality, you have to have an incomplete perception of the universe. If your perception of the universe is complete, in a way, I think you would kind of just become the universe. Yeah. like so it's kind of a necessary condition of individuality that there is kind of a veil between mm-hmm. us and this objective truth and so we can arrive at the capital t truth it is out there and it can be found but we can never be certain that we actually have it mm. because if we could i think it would kind of in a way contradict consciousness and, and and sort of self if you could find one capital T truth I feel like logically you probably you could find any and every capital T truth and if you can find every capital T truth then you could know everything and if you know everything at least the way I see it you kind of just become the universe you come mm-hmm. become either like God or the universe or both depending on how you see all of that and so by nature of our existence we can only know small t truth which is like stuff that we are fairly sure of based on like sort of the perceptive abilities granted to us by our existence. Mm. That
0: is kind of very, I think Keep that's the mixer, move it back. It's kind of how I think of it really. I, so it's one mm. thing I'd add is that we're kind of caught in this trap, this paradox in that as human beings, we have to think in concepts and in words. And truth, mm. whether small t truth or big T truth, is a concept which is a product of the human mind. Mm. It's a, it's a symbolization. It's a representation. Even the notion of truth itself is already at one remove from reality or the universe as it really is. Mm. You know, to, to even be able to posit, like, that this is the truth means that we are putting it into our conceptual framework, which yeah. means we're not leaving it as it is.
1: Yeah, that's actually a good a good point. Yeah, because, like, I mean, in a way, you could posit that in a material and objective sense, like, the truth does not exist. It's not a thing that you can hold. It's a category that we come up with. It's that, like... I think
0: truth perhaps like capital T truth is already like, it's a paradoxical world in that it misses the point entirely. Yeah. The, like positive, try, trying to describe truth as truth and you lose it because you've already conceptualized it. You've already turned it into a mental image and a concept yeah. rather than the sum total of everything that is actually happening. Yeah. And this is why I say in, um, In contemplative traditions there's this real emphasis on letting go of the representational mind Mm -hmm. ceasing to identify with all of the concepts and images and signifiers that the brain produces and it's only in that moment where the brain, the mind, the consciousness which is probably more than the brain Mm. ceases trying to label everything that is when truth is finally attained when it's just pure experience and that's in many of these traditions i think there's this idea of like attaining sort of the realization that consciousness is everything and it's so it's like uh synchronous with that moment of just entirely letting go Mm. the moment you completely let go of all of your concepts you realize you become
1: like
0: consciousness becomes one with everything yeah wow and that kind of works because also like what is conceptualization is splitting things into concepts and words and ideas like reality becomes planets and tvs and people
1: tables and floorboards and are
0: all concepts but you let go of the concepts and all you're left with is just the pre-symbolic
1: yeah the pre-symbolic but then oneness of everything is that But the oneness of everything is not communicatable. No. The moment you try to communicate it. The moment you try to communicate it, you represent it. The moment you represent it, you lose the oneness. Exactly. And so, in a way, that occupies the sort of funny space of being an experience that you can have, but not something that you can communicate without losing its kind of, like, I really don't want to say the word essence, but I'm going to say the word essence, essence mm. <laughs> as if uh, I'm not sure what I really mean when I say that, but something, you know, you, the, 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 you, in order to have communication in order to impart understanding of the world, you almost necessitate imperfection in that understanding that is imparted. Mm-hmm. And so then you could kind of be like, well, we should find methods for the least imperfect way of attaining and imparting information. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, is kind of what science is supposed to be,
0: yeah, sort of. absolutely. That is what science is, and I think science does a very good job at it. And the issue is that the stage that gets forgotten is that all representation is only that representation Mm -hmm. and you can take apart the etymology of the word representation i mean to re-present something when you present something it's like put forwards right but so it's there in the present moment but to re-present it it's like taking something that was put forwards and putting it forwards again
1: yeah taking
0: the present and putting it forwards and i think the uh the implicit idea is that like it's subtly changed or it's different. The, the, the representation is not the same as the initial presentation. That's mm-hmm. why it's a representation. Any attempt to represent is not the initial thing that we are presented with.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's not the present.
1: Oh, okay, yeah.
0: And so when people say, well, I have, like, I just believe in science, well, which is an interesting phrase. Itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't believe in God, I believe in science. But it's it's to miss a fundamental step, a kind of real fundamental knowledge that science itself is a tool for modeling, yeah, it is not the direct experience of truth, capital T truth itself.
1: Yeah, it's it. Science isn't the universe. Science is a representation of the universe. <clears throat> but that's the only way to sort of usefully understand the universe but it has the imperfection of not being well, i mean i would say i think okay means, it's not the I only mean, u- useful way to understand the universe but it's it's pretty close <laughs> like there's a lot we- of other useful ways to think about everything and i'm not denying that but in, if you want to like in terms of technical applications science imparts a level and a kind of understanding that nothing else has. And there's other kinds and levels of understanding that science isn't capable of, especially, for example, like, you know, I guess in a general sense, and there are people out there who disagree with me and understand this, but I don't really feel like you can use science to arrive at any principles about how to create like a cohesive society. Mm. But, you know, there's no way of conceiving of the universe that could have ever come up with a semiconductor for example like uh, except science
0: this is it like i mean
1: you said used a word in a
0: technical sense and yeah. that i think is right if you're trying to engineer things if you're trying to shape the materials of nature hmm. whether external to human like a conductor but also like medicine trying to interrelate with the cells of the body yeah and say the lungs and the, the digestive systems or whatever the science is the way to go but if you're trying to i don't want to say engineer consciousness but you're trying to produce a um an experience of self and an experience of humanity that is enriching and and beneficial and science can only go so far and i think science Mm -hmm. misses that out completely Mm -hmm. you know i think certainly for me i think one of the the differences between the sort of like usefulness of science and say spirituality come at a level that science is a way of modeling the world that gives you immense power over it but puts you in this position of the objective observer with no direct relation to it Mm -hmm. whereas spirituality puts you in a personal relationship with the universe which is usually known by another of its names which is god Mm -hmm. it's kind of personified but it's given the shape of some kind of like human-like energy because as a human we we relate things to ourselves, we relate to things in terms of humans. it's the same way reason we give pets animal names and say like, oh the dog's so happy, yeah, you know, we think of animals as having human emotions and I think we think of, we conceive of, you know, the universe itself as having a human-like aspect, you know, this idea that, uh, man was made in God's image or maybe it's the other way around that God was made yeah. in man's image but I think the critic of religion and spirituality would say well well, that's proof that man it's all just a figment of the imagination I would say no 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 it's actually like it's a representation that is immensely valuable although yeah. it may originate from within rather than without it still has usefulness i, I found from my personal life it's immensely, immensely useful to be able to have some kind of like way of relating with what I conceive to be the universe rather than just seeing it as this kind of like cold, inert force field of rules and laws.
1: Mm -hmm. Which is cool. But does that make it true?
0: I think it gives it a kind of truth. It gives it, I think there's a pragmatic truth mm-hmm. in that if you can produce a way of relating to something that is valuable, that has positive effects, mm-hmm. then there's a degree of truth to it. But you can pick that apart but there's also a lot of shit about conceptualizing the world in religious terms. Yeah. It leads to divisiveness. But then I think, you know, here's something that's really that needs to be better understood by um, by modern people is the distinction between religion and spirituality and mysticism. Yeah. Because they're kind of often used
1: interchangeably, but they're not the same things. Well, I would say I understand it as like religion to me is organized. Like you don't do religion alone in a cabin in the woods you do religion with like a 100 other people in a church and then like spirituality is like so religion is in a way organized spirituality to me whereas spirituality is the actual individual thing that you can totally do alone in a cabin in the woods so like i would say that for example even if you are like a nun if you go off and you pray on your own You're not really being religious. You're just being spiritual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Um, I I think that's... And then mysticism... I don't... I mean, I don't... Yeah, I can't really come up with a definition for that one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, briefly. I think it's something like spirituality is... Relation to whatever you just... What feel God is. Yeah, But mysticism is something like direct experience. It's something like spirituality is more like practice based and knowledge based. It's like I okay. think of the universe in these terms and I do these things in order to relate to it. I pray, I meditate, I go to church, I give to charity, I marry within my religious community, whatever. Although that's not mm. religion. Whereas mysticism, you know, I think the word mystic is often used in like Sufi mystics or... Uh, well, mystics become like a very small section of like a religious community.
1: Yeah. It's like
0: within Islam, you've got all of normal Islam and then you've got Sufi mystics.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's
0: like a different level. And yeah, I think I, I want to look into this or more. Or kind of
1: like people who speak in tongues and stuff like that Mm. all that sort of weird sort of christian stuff that kind of goes off on the side in sort of small groups of christians who relate to god in very bizarrely different ways Mm. you mean like that kind of thing
0: well it's hard to say because there's there's sectionality within religions meaning there's different ways of practicing like i mean like within christianity you've got catholicism and protestantism and then you've got all the subdivisions within those yeah and people who talk in tongues i don't know whether to think of that as like a, a specific division of that subsect
1: or whether i think that's... It, it comes up in the bible a couple times mm. and it's like I feel like it's something that throughout history has been most of the time sort of recognized as like, oh yeah, that's part of the whole thing, but it's always sort of off on the side. And then I think especially like the, basically since the Protestant reformation, I think a fair amount of Protestants are like, nah. but I'm really, I've, I've never actually even seen someone speaking in tongues before. I don't even know what that is. I've just heard huge amounts about it, that it's this sudden like sort of, ethereal state that people can enter into and where they seem at one with like god or something like that mm.
0: but to go back i think trying mm. to think of the original point it's like mysticism well wh- where we started before that was like
1: if, what if, if, one, and spirituality? if one
0: conceives of do if one has a spiritual relationship with god or with the universe yeah is it true
1: Ooh, uh, maybe it depends on how you characterize the relationship though because like i think everyone has a relationship with the universe by virtue of existence like in fact that's kind of what existence sort of implies that it has some kind of relation to the universe like stuff that doesn't exist is you know that has absolutely no existence whatsoever is anything that doesn't in any way relate to everything which is the universe so like even for example like star wars doesn't exist but it does it does kind of exist because it, you know it is a movie that exists And it's, and you know, all the characters in it are actors, they're they're real people, and the lines were written, so it exists in a sense. And everything you can conceive of exists, but all the stuff that you can't even conceive of, in other words, has no relation, that doesn't exist. So everyone has a relationship with the universe, but then some people out there might say that they've never experienced anything spiritual, and so their relationship with the universe is not spiritual.
0: Mm. And here's, well, yeah, here's the thing. I think you have to choose to relate to the universe spiritually. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, I think you have to believe the universe is worth relating to spiritually in Mm -hmm. order to do so. You have to choose to believe. Mm -hmm. But then the whole stance of believing is. Supposedly knowing, you Ooh. know, there's this paradox. There's something that Sartre said is like, "To believe is to know you believe, and to know you believe is to not believe." Because if you really believed, ah, oh, yeah, you wouldn't you have wouldn't to be, be like, "I believe." You just be like, and you know, I was watching this um this interview with Carl Jung last week, and the interviewer asked him, like, um, "Do you believe in God?" And Jung pauses for a long. don't believe I like, no
1: uh uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> fuck um that's pretty um that's complex man that's that's difficult that's like
0: i think i think it has to be looked at with this lens like every way we try to relate to whatever is with our minds is a representation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we put our faith in our representations and call that knowledge. Now we can... That's
1: have... a pretty good one. That's actually a pretty good one. Knowledge is like representations that we put faith into. But then... Mm. Within that way of thinking about knowledge, or at least within just that, without adding any caveats, which you could, and I'm not saying you can't add any caveats, but just for the purposes of this question, not without adding any any more than just that. Does that presuppose that some knowledge could be better than other knowledge? Well, or maybe that. Okay, a better ways that some representations are more worthy of putting faith into than other representations.
0: I certainly think you have to include that within. Well, this is a model itself, right? That oh fuck out. no no don't do it.
1: <laughs>
0: and I think you have to build that into your model. You have to have faith that there are better and worse representations. Yeah. And in some sense, intellectual life is the striving to produce the most accurate representation
1: yeah or the best and so well i guess you could say that like if knowledge is is representations that we put faith into then the representation that some things are better than others if we put faith into it becomes knowledge and then through that we can reverse apply it to the whole concept of representations and be like some representations are more worthy of putting faith into than others but then, and I'm not sure, like, that seems really good, but I feel like there could be a circular logic in there. Yeah, that just made my head explode, <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I'm, uh,
0: I think I'm officially in too deep.
1: <laughs> but then what if the representation that some things are better than others is not, what if someone comes up with a better representation than that? <laughs> but then by believing in the representation of that that's better, you stop believing that some things are better than others. So your whole way of ascribing that representation as more worthy of faith than the better representation, the representation of things being better or worse, becomes a moot point. So in a way, oh, I really don't want to say this. I feel like I've come up with an all right argument for it being not possible to contradict me, not possible to say that I'm wrong. Like, you don't have to say that I'm right, but it's not possible to say that I'm wrong when I say that some representations are better than others. Because if you say that I'm wrong, you're saying that there's a representation out there that's better than the representation that stuff is better than others. And therefore, you're destroying the whole category by which you could even accuse me of wrongness. Maybe. I'm not. I, that's just a cool thought that I just had.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think, funnily enough, we've kind of reached a problem that philosophy has been stuck on. For a long time now. Yeah. Which, I mean, like, postmodernism in a nutshell, like, there are no truth claims except that one.
1: Only a Sith it's an absolute.
0: <laughs> but, in it, it's like, and I think this is the issue with, again, trying to make models with the world. It's like, they just get more and more complex until you get to a point where it's like, it's hard to even follow what you're saying and you don't know if you're making sense or not
1: maybe yeah so i see that i think it's
0: like it's all symbolic representation which is good at getting close to capital g truth up to a point Mm -hmm. but then it just kind of like i don't basically the point i'm trying to make is i don't know if you can represent it in language Maybe I don't, not. I don't think you can get there. Maybe I think not. you can get very close.
1: But you wind up caught in... Well, that's in like, I mean, in a way, that's just straight Derrida, man. That's like what he moral... I actually, I haven't specifically read Derrida, but from a lot of stuff I've read about him, like, he makes that kind of exact claim, which is that, like, language itself is so structural that and that structure is so vast, and everything's sort of meaning is only present within relation to a structure that, and because you don't, you know, and you can think of language that way, and be like, aha, the meaning is in the structure, but you don't actually think of the whole structure when you say something. And it isn't actually like a present thing, it's an abstract thing, and so there's actually like a kind of tension in that representation of language. And so, going back to what you were saying, there is no sort of perfect way of perceiving or communicating about the world or no, not perceiving. There's no like flawless way of communicating about the world and even, even the massive structures that we can build for communication aren't, you know, the, the, the meaning is actually much more abstractly sort of like floating through the structure and not inherently part of it and so yeah like you could look at it like that like it, language itself is a barrier to us ever achieving sort of like i'm trying to think I'm trying to think of like a like a like a like a, like a true or like a a, a real a complete certainty about mm sort of stuff but i think that's an important revelation in and of itself like and i think that's kind of like the value in a way of postmodernism that if you're going to reject like grand narratives and if you're going to reject or not 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 necessarily to sort of dogmatically reject but to have that base level of understanding about like these barriers and to apply that in the form of questioning sort of central truths where they appear and the truths around which stuff is constructed and being like like you know knowing deep down that they're at least in my opinion Maybe, at least I feel like it is good to conceive of the world in a way that doesn't ascribe one truth, one central organizing thing, ultimate value, and to discard all the others. And it's better to have the wider perception of, like, here are different truths that people set up to organize their worldview around and that's cool and to sort of like accept that and to to be like you know and you know not one of these is the ultimate and the others are all terrible maybe some are better other than others but you know deep down there is that barrier to the real ultimate truth mm. and maybe that's a good thing like, because you know, to go back to the point I said that, like, the ultimate truth would really be knowing everything, and if you knew everything, you would kind of be the universe. And so, for us to even exist, we have to not know everything. And so, that's fine. And I don't know. That's kind of what I take away from postmodernism. Is that, yeah. you know, it, it's not. Some people, some postmodernists do put it forward as nihilism, as like you shouldn't accept any absence of it others put it forward as kind of more like you should just understand this thing about the truths that you accept you know um i kind of flip-flop between those two positions like sometimes i'm like okay i'm going to accept some truths or accept these truths or a bunch of truths but i'm going to understand that these aren't the ultimate truths. these are my truths but then other times i'm kind of like there's no truth
0: <laughs> guess you get stuck in the uh what is a
1: truth right what is a truth
0: well man my head is exploding
1: yeah it's pretty nuts man it's pretty <laughs> fucking out there like but i feel like we've made some 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 headway you know i feel like i feel like i feel like we can
0: hopefully we haven't lost too many listeners
1: yeah, that's a good, that's good. I mean, hopefully we haven't people confused there, like, too many people. What the
0: fuck are these guys talking about?
1: Yeah, but at the same time, I think it's good to maybe open our podcast with, like, and this is how we think maybe we might be able or potentially unable to know anything, because everything from this point onward, you can now be like, aha, you know, there's kind of a, a base or a, or an or a a known absence of a base. depending on... <laughs> <Fuck>. <laughs> there is either a base or a known absence of a base. You're not allowed to use the word "no" know or known Oh, fuck, anymore. okay. <laughs> um, well, because, I mean, I guess, but surely even, like, knowing there is an absence of a base is itself a bass. <laughs> this is a good starting point. Not yet. I agree. Here we go. Yeah. Look,
0: so, what we realised? We're... Trying to make knowledge is difficult. Yes. Society's got a real problem with making knowledge at Yeah, the we moment. do. It's... Technology is making it harder, and we have a responsibility to work out how the fuck we make knowledge. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, making knowledge
1: is really fucking complicated. Really complicated. And we've gone to the bottom, and we started from first principles, and we don't know where we're going to go, but we're definitely going to go somewhere, <laughs> and we're hopefully going to create some knowledge along the way. Oh yeah, sweet. Well, I guess this is as good time as any to end the episode. So, peace out. Welcome to Techno Social, and hope you come back. See you in episode two. Oh yeah.